Hello and welcome to The Booking Club, the podcast that brings you today's leading authors and commentators from a table at their favourite dining spots. I'm your host, Jack Haldane. We're still locked down here in the UK, so on this episode, I'll be speaking virtually to my next guest based in Glasgow, Peter Girgigan, about his latest book, Democracy for Sale. Hello, Peter. How are you? Oh, same old, same old. Bit work, busy with work, busy and bored simultaneously. If that makes sense. <laughs> Just having your thoughts bounce off all four walls. Yeah. My next guest is a writer, broadcaster, and investigations editor for Open Democracy, whose book, published in spring of last year, "Democracy for Sale: Dark Money and Dirty Politics," we'll be discussing on this episode. Peter Gergigan, thanks for coming on, Peter. Thanks for having me on, Jack. If we take 2021 as a moment to step back and reset our perspective on democratic processes here in the UK, taking as read the tumult of of the past decade. What are three things would you say voters should go into the next general election knowing about how those processes in this country work before they approach the ballot box? Well, my book really tried to look at it kind of it's called Democracy for Sale, Dark Money and Dirty Politics. And what I meant by that was kind of almost two twins of this is one is the issue of money and the other is the issue of, of information. And if you were to ask me what are the three big kind of almost takeaways for this about like how our politics works in Britain and, and what people should know in 20, next time we go to the ballot box. Well, the one thing which you know is runs through my book is the kind of huge gaps in the legislation and the law that we have around how we regulate politics. So, for example, you know, if you political donations are regulated in Britain, but there's no ceiling on how much uh, donations a, an individual can give. So they can give in kind of unlimited amounts of money, which it's not hard to imagine how that could skew the political process. But also, even though donations have to be declared, there's lots of loopholes and ways around that. So my book goes into that, how it's possible to use front companies to make donations. There's loads of aspects of electoral regulation I just think have not kept pace at all. If you get a leaflet through your door at election time, I'm sure lots of your listeners have, you might notice a little imprint that says who it was paid for, or a little, you know, and who it's, it's uh, distributed on behalf of. If that same ad appeared on social media, it doesn't have to have any of that. You don't have to carry any of those things. So these are almost like quite small things, but they can make a big difference. And I think the big thing as well is to be sceptical without being cynical. I think this is one of the big issues that we have around information too, where there's a kind of, oh, I question everything. That's reasonable to a point, but actually it can lead you into, into places that aren't very healthy either. And I think like the, the third thing is almost like a meta thing. You know, my book goes into a lot of the mechanics of, of how democracy is, is overturned, you know, how democracy is eroded. But when it comes to how do you deal with this, you know, there's lots of reforms you could suggest, but there's also, I think, a, b- a bigger conversation about democracy itself and how do you how do we engage people in democracy? You know, like changing bits of legislation laws is going to solve some things, but it's, it's not going to solve the bigger crisis of trust in democracy that I think probably is, that's a big, 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 big topic, but one that I think we really can't shy away from because we're kind of seeing the effects of it everywhere, you know, from some of the stuff we saw during the pandemic in terms of like, you know, people not trusting uh, that it was even happening, vaccinations. And we could see it, like watching news clips of some of those people in Washington was just so stark because they were talking about a completely and utterly different world. The things they were saying had almost no correlation to the world in which we're living in. And I think at that stage, then you have to go, what's happened? And part of that story is the story of money and, and, and influence. That's helped erode democracy. But it doesn't mean we can't face forward and go, okay, well then, that's happened. What do we do with it? 
So that's a very thick and fast analysis. But reading around the book, I was surprised to learn that the term dark money, to talk a little bit about the financial investigation that you go into in the book, was only invented in 2010. Is there a line that helps us to tell apart dark money from more ethical sources of funding? Yes, you're right. Dark money, it's, it's an American neologism. It just And it means money from unaccountable sources that get into the political system. Jane Meyer coined it, who's a great journalist at, at The New Yorker, wrote a great book called Dark Money, which I would heartily recommend, all about how that world worked in America. And so basically, effectively, it's, it's looking at how money and influence gets into politics in ways that can circumvent the political system. And in, in America, that's quite obvious in some respects. It's, it's really true, these big, huge super PACs, you know, these massive which under this court ruling called Citizens United basically have the same legal standing as a citizen, so they can dole out money anonymously into political campaigns. These super PACs are treated as citizens in the same way that corporations are treated as people and thus can do as much damage as they will. Yes, exactly. And essentially it was the same argument, as far as I understand it, that made it all the way to the Supreme Court. And many of the people who had funded American politics anonymously for years backed the Citizens United case. But in a British context, then we have electoral laws, as I say, but there's a lot of ways in which money can still get into the political system. So the most obvious ways is through kind of anonymous donations or shell, shell company donations. So we have seen examples of this in Britain. But another really popular way, and probably where most money, dark money is spent, is through anonymously funded think tanks, corporate lobbyists who work in and around Westminster. And when I first started doing this work, it was about four years ago, I didn't know the difference between the Institute of Economic Affairs and the Institute for Fiscal Studies, for example. The Institute for Fiscal Studies is a genuinely non-aligned, um, you know, kind of economics unit. Uh, it's very widely seen as very, very reputable in terms of the analysis it does within the parameters of what it does, and very transparent. The Institute of Economic Affairs is pretty much the opposite. It's a free market think tank that's existed for 50 years, doesn't declare its donors. We know from investigative journalists that it's had money from tobacco, a lot of money from the tobacco industry, the gambling industry, the oil industry, but it also gets a lot of media coverage. These people are often in the press, they're often writing very thin reports that get cited in Parliament. They really, uh, they're very influential on the backbench of the Conservative Party. They were very influential in the wake of Brexit, pushing for Britain to leave the customs union and the single markets. And this is a way in which money can change and warp politics in ways that's really quite hard to understand until, until you start to see these groups. And what's funny is like they're like one of those things, once you start to see them, they pop up everywhere. You realize that actually they have a huge power in the public discourse. And this is what had happened in America almost 50 years ago. The Koch brothers, the kind of the first wave of dark money funders who spent over a billion dollars in American politics, they realized that it was far more effective rather than trying to buy politicians trying to bribe politicians or anything else, it was much more effective to buy the idea space of politics, to buy the ideas that people are talking about and to make those ideas the ones that you're, you want to happen. And I think that's what's happened in Britain a lot. I think it's really hard for us to see it. What happens in Britain is really small amounts of money can make a huge impact. So the Institute of Economic Affairs, its annual turnover, we know it's turnover, it's about £2 million a year. It estimated in 2017, I think it was, that it had £66 million worth of media coverage. And that's a really big way, I think, in which anonymous funding, anonymous money gets into the political process. A lot of people think that dark money is, is a phenomenon that originates with and benefits uh, the powerful, particularly on the political right. Is that a fair assessment in your view, given one of the things you try and get across in the book is that, look, you don't need to have bottomless pockets to engage in this kind of activity. You can be a relatively small, tight group that simply wants to agitate for a specific policy change. 
Yes, I think in general it has been. I think that the challenge has always been, I think, or the challenge people have tried to do, like, tried from the other side of the political spectrum to influence politics in the same way as they they've really have struggled in general. So it comes, the whole dark money phenomenon comes primarily from the American right and has kind of been picked up by the British right. In America, what's happened is the Democratic Party has definitely started to take in a lot more donations. It was interesting during the last presidential election when the Democrats did seriously outraise the Republicans, and not just among small donors. All, the Democrats did well on Wall Street, so there was, you know, Trump did well with some donors too, but it was actually the Dems. In Britain, it's been slightly different because the, the Tory party actually normally, for a long time, had trailed Labour in terms of donations, but most of Labour's support has tended to come from the unions and from ordinary members of the public. If you look at the 2019 rich list in the Sunday Times, um, a 2020 rich list, what was interesting is the top 50 political donors, only one had given money to Labour. And the don- that same donor gave money to Tories too, and he only gave £5,000 to Labour, which is not very much money. Labour are trying to do something about this now, and Keir Starmer set up this, I think it's called the chair circle, or something equally opaque, to try and bring in donors. So it's not saying that they, they were trying to get there, but in general, the think tank world, for example, the, like, the kind of central-left think tank world has relied either on, on government funding or on philanthropic funding to survive. And they're far more transparent about their donations. That's where we, we can see it. You can, like, basically, you can split the think tank world into those who declare their donations and those who don't. So to talk a little bit about how dark money and dirty politics has embedded itself in our media, you tweet a lot about the grift that like the force surrounds and penetrates and binds the Twitter sphere together. Um, what have been some of your inside experiences of this in the media that have left you kind of a gasp? Well, I've had it's it's what I mean by that the grift is like these kind of talking heads that appear, people like Brendan O'Neill, spiked crowd that appear on television. And increasingly I'm sure people watching televised debates go, why am I seeing two quite extreme positions here? Like why is a debate being set up in such a way that you get really, really extreme position on one side and, 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 and again on the other. 20 years ago, there was very little politics on television. The era of rolling news, the era of like just a huge increase in the amount of content means that these kind of people are perfectly placed. And what's key about them as well is that they would often argue any side of an argument. You know, it's quite remarkable. Like, so that's where, and that's where a lot of these groups started to become prominent. When there was changes happening, especially under New Labour, things like, say, like the anti- introduction of anti-smoking legislation. It's quite hard to get somebody to argue against a lot of that stuff. Up pops these people. They're perfectly happy to take up these contrarian, contradictory propositions and positions. So for, we'll give you one example. And I didn't like myself for doing this. I, I got annoyed at myself afterwards. Um, I was on Scottish television about a year ago there was a debate about the Irish border, which I'm from quite near from, and I've written about it a lot. I was on it. A former Conservative MP, Scottish Conservative MP, who voted for Brexit was on it. And a former advisor to, I think it was Alistair Darling, so a Labour person was on it. And a woman from Spite, the Revolutionary Communist Party, who were like kind of professional contrarians. Both the, myself, the former Conservative MP, and the former Labour person were having, I think, quite a reasonable debate from three separate positions. The person from Spike was talking, like, was intentionally pulling that debate, was talking about, like, people's clutching their, per- how, how she knew nobody, she's from an Irish family in Britain, and she knew nobody who thought the Good Friday Agreement was great or was a good thing. This is palpable nonsense. But it kept pulling this conversation. And I got quite annoyed and I snapped um, and said, so, like, that she was uh, peddling. Um, I think my line was something Panglossian nonsense. Uh, and it kind of got clipped and went viral. Uh, and I didn't mean to get that annoyed. I didn't like getting annoyed. But it, these are not good faith arguments. I think that's the really important thing. These are not people, I think, this is how I separate the world. It's not about agreeing with what someone says. It's about, are they saying it in good faith? 
So I mightn't agree with what the Conservative former MP who voted for Brexit is saying. I don't, you know, his political position, but I believe firmly he's coming at a position of good faith. I can tell in the way he is arguing, he's arguing from good faith. The problem is there are too many people in Britain, in the British media, look at the likes of Alison Pearson's Twitter streams, Toby Young. These are not people that I think you can make a fair case that they are arguing in good faith. And that, I think, has been what's been so corrosive. You'd have thought that the appearance that you're describing in which you, you had this reaction would have gotten you invited back on. Well, the, the producer was delighted with this with this, this, this encounter we'd had. I was really unhappy because we did nothing. We, it was just heat. There was no light. Hmm. There was no proper discussion. And it, this person had pulled the entire conversation to a ridiculous place and we were not having a proper reasonable discussion anymore and, and people were not being informed. They were mm. being entertained. And that I do not think that is a pur- purpose of public broadcasting is, to, is not to entertain, it is to inform. I'm quite reefy in like that. Probably as well is that I do tell people I'm not going to argue a point on something. But if someone rings me up and says, oh, would you argue X or Y? I'm not, no, I'm not. That, that's not... Well, what do they ask you when they call you and ask you to argue from a particular position? We're wanting to balance the debate. We're wanting to get, we're going to get this person to say this thing and we're mm. going to want to get somebody else to say this other thing. Like, and it's, I think it's really, like, you know, even when I was, when I was with, when my book was out, there was one or two things I did on, on the radio where like you had you know, a caller calling in talking about George Soros. Um, and you're like, well, I don't work, you know, I don't work for George Soros. I'm not sure what you're talking about. Like, I work for Open Democracy, which sounds like the Open Society Foundation. And Open Democracy has had some funding from the Open Society Foundation over the years, mainly for its Russia work. But, you know, I don't work for the Open Society Foundation. These are two completely separate organizations. But this person comes on, makes all these wild claims. And you cannot but sound flinty and defensive in that case. Mm -hmm. So if you're listening, it sounds like a mess. It sounds like, well, that guy's saying that, that guy's saying he isn't, but, uh, you know, who knows really? Whereas actually what's happened is someone's come on and said something that's blatantly untrue. I've said it's false. But even the the very fact of having that conversation you know, it kind of trickles down doubt. You know, and it's it's the kind of thing that's also flipped, you know, because a lot of the kind of think tanks I write about will critique me for going, well, you're just, these are just at hominem attacks that you're giving to us because you're just, you know, you're not attacking us, you're attacking, you're not attacking what we're saying, you're attacking us because of wh- who we are and where we come from. And I think there's a different line though because if you do not know who's funding somebody, you cannot tell if they are acting in good or bad faith. Let's move on to the subject of cronyism, Peter, because this chumocracy of political donors cashing in on big government contracts is something which throughout this pandemic has flimflammed well beyond a joke. To take just two examples, we've had the mess of the Compass Owen Chartwells sending food packages to the country's poorest children that turned out to be grossly inadequate. And then there was the scoop that I believe you and a colleague Russell Scott landed at Open Democracy just the other day on the £350 million coronavirus testing contract awarded to a firm owned mostly by Lord Ashcroft, who many people will know is a key Conservative donor. So I think on this subject, I, I suppose there are two instances of cronyism. There's like the latter of the two examples, that which stinks mainly because it's clear that it serves the interests of the already powerful. And then there are those that really kick off public anger, aren't there? Because they, in addition to this, produce such poor outcomes, that they're almost morally irredeemable. What will it take, do you think, in step-by-step terms to tackle cronyism, given that even politicians in this country who recognise it to be a problem also admit to benefiting from it? This is kind of what I've ended up spending 
the time since my book came out. And actually, there's a new edition of my book, which just came out two weeks ago, which has a new chapter at the back of it, which is all about cronyism. Um, and it draws on the big piece I wrote for the LRB, but also some more recent stuff as well. What I find really interesting is in Britain is almost like a denial about this reality. You know, mm. there's a denial about how this is a real thing. And even the words like chumocracy, I think if we were talking about another country, it's like we'd at least use words like cronyism. You know, like corruption, I think often, often it's harder. Corruption does require a, a, a cause and effect that I think in a lot of these cases we can't see it. But what we can see is a general mass of stuff that makes you go, okay, this is too much for it just to be coincidental. And actually we know this. The National Audit Office, the Spending Watchdog, did a report actually on the back of reporting that I and many other colleagues in the media had done. And they did find that there was a VIP channel. And if you were in the VIP channel, which was for kind of politically connected firms, if you're in that channel, you were 10 times more likely to get a government contract. And the sums involved are eye-watering. Like, if you got one of these contracts, you are made for life. The relationship between the private sector and the public sector in British government is just really warped. The way the revolving door between government and industry is just, I think, is wrong. The fact that ministers can just walk into uh, high-paying jobs. You know, we saw it last year with Shadjiv Javid, who just left um, uh, number, uh, number 11 as the chancellor and of walked course, into yeah. a, a new job, um, I think, with J.P. Morgan. This is, that's, not, that's, not an, that's not an exception. That's almost a rule. And I think there's a huge problem with this. And it's, it's getting worse. Like, I, myself, my colleagues, uh, some of my colleagues at Open Democracy, we did a story just after the general election. I think it was something like a fifth of new Tory MPs had worked as lobbyists before. So this is, you know, it is almost government by lobbyist. So what you have is, on the one hand, a huge outsourcing. You've got a huge kind of retrenchment of the state. The state does less, but private companies do really well out of it. This is one area where there's, there's actually kind of off-the-shelf things you could pick up and take from other countries about. What might those things be? Could it be, for example, like an open-source procurement register that the public could engage with to see who was being lined up in the bids, what their track records were, who's at the helm of them? Yeah, for sure. That's part of it, open and transparent. If you talk to people in the contracting, in the procurement sector, they're aghast at how bad it is. And they're constantly trying to, you know, who are interested in trying to bring open-source procurement. Like that, you know, that's almost, it's, it should be happening. Has the British public lost its ability to be shocked by corruption? I think there's definitely an issue with that. I think we've almost become, and I think that's, that's what plays on it. Like, you know, powerful politicians kind of playing to say they're all the same. And I don't think that's true. I know, cons- I know good conservative MPs. I know good people on every party, I think. And I know bad people, I think, on every party too. Like, but there's a sense in which the public, this is, this is my worry is that like, between like, and I sometimes even think about my own reporting. Am I contributing to this? Am I actually contributing in the sense where everyone goes, oh "God, they're all terrible, they're all corrupt." I don't think that's true. I don't think they're all. And I think in some ways, partly they're also dealing with a system that is just fundamentally broken. I think the role of money in politics is so damaging because political parties have to raise money to survive, and the Conservatives particularly do actually because they don't have donations from unions, which puts in. You know, there's a huge problem there. You know, it's not hard to imagine. There's a huge, and a lot of funding scandals are not to do with money necessarily ending up in one individual's pocket. But the, but the problem is the system is set up in such a way that, like, you've got politicians there, and they're not getting money from donors to go to themselves. The money goes into the party, and there's rarely any scandals that involves. There's occasionally a cash for question scandal back in the nineties that involves money going straight into a politician's pocket. But on the other side of it. They need, they want, there's an invested interest in them being cozy and close to companies because when they get out of office, they can walk into really well-paying gold-plated jobs. And that's the problem. It's like a circle. 
the question over the power that tech platforms have to influence politics tends to move around quite a bit depending on which sensitivities they push. And right now they're pushing very hard on the issue of censorship. Uh, where before they might have pushed on the issue of, say, monopoly, voter consent to receiving ads. Now, I I know from having read your book that you're no fan of big tech, but what worries you most about all of this right now? I'm also, I'm with the kind of, I'm with Angela Merkel. I'm not massively, my my big concern has always been that we have outsourced so much regulation to tech companies. And we've outsourced so much of how things work to tech companies rather than look to engage with them ourselves. So one of those questions I do think is, are these monopoly players? I think there's a fair question to ask, particularly about Facebook. Um, and I think there's a real, there is actually an issue when it comes to censorship. But I think behind that, there's a much, much bigger issue. And that's the issue of who gets, you know, who's, who sets the terms of engagement here? Do, mm. You know, not just around what to post on a platform, but how do platforms operate? Facebook refused to take down political ads they knew were false in the run in the run American presidential election. They eventually caved and said they do they wouldn't take any ads in the last week. But the problem is that's that's a problem of regulation because Facebook shouldn't be the ones that are deciding purely what they're doing. That's the bit where a lot of um, a lot of countries and a lot of governments have, have shied away from. And it's not a coincidence that big tech has reacted in the wake of what happened in Capitol Hill because. They allow these things to circulate. I know people back in Ireland who are now QAnon followers, and it is a cult, and it would not have happened without Facebook. You say you know people in Ireland who have joined this cult that doesn't appear in the book, but which is clearly going to have ripple effects throughout the, the Biden administration. We really should look at that now. Yes, indeed. I think like in the, after finishing this book, if you'd asked me what book I would write directly next, it would have been a, conspiracy, a book about conspiracy theories. Because I do agree, I think we have, and this is, like, so for example, what I'm, it's hard to talk to people about, I find the people who, you know, I've, I've seen a number of people I know, and I, I try and engage with, it's really hard, I don't know if you've tried it. I haven't actually, I've never had that experience. It's, I find, I've had a couple of people I know, and I, I try and engage, and it's, it's really, like, it is, I find it's very draining, and it's very difficult, because the wall is really, really high, and a lot of it's, it's come through social media. You know, you're talking about people in the middle of Ireland sharing memes now about, you know, like the deep state in America and Trump's going to save us. And like, how is this, you know, how has this happened? I think partly it's because, you know, when it comes to something like QAnon, I stopped using the word conspiracy theory and started using the word cult. It's actually very, very, you know, it's an effective, you know, almost like an all-encompassing system of, uh, of belief. And it, it transcends reality in the same way that, like, Organized religion kind of transcends reality too. Um, and, you know, the death, I do think there's something about the thesis of the death of organized religion and, and the rise of what in some ways could be seen alternative, as alternative sources of, of, um, of, of providing meaning in people's lives. Towards the end of the book, you talk about the conversations you've had with the political theorist Martin Moore, who I'll leave you to introduce in this context, but who is notable for saying that democracy as it exists now simply cannot deal with the forces at play here, that it needs to adapt. And if it's ever going to adapt, what needs to happen? Yeah, Martin's great. Martin's um, a, a professor at King's College London, the author of a lovely, a great book called Democracy Hacks. Uh, also, just a really nice guy. But I, the reason I kind of talked to Martin in the book, and the reason I made that point for Martin about like what you know, there's a kind of it's it's actually the, one of the points I made at the very start. But this kind of two orders, the first order stuff, almost the technocratic things that we could change, and I do think there's lots of technocratic things we could change legislation, the kind of things I talked about, banning, you know, stopping people having second jobs, um, actually having proper internet archive for ads, you know, all that sort of stuff. That can all, that is all doable. But there's also a kind of second, a first order, a higher conversation. I think about like, what does it mean to participate in a democracy in the 21st century? And I think we've had these experiments with participative democracy or referendums. I think 
we've seen the limits of that too. And I, I'm like, and I do actually think there's huge limits to that as well. Um, and I think, or at least in the frame that we have them, where they're just here is a yes no question, here is a referendum, and you do you you make an answer, and then we figure out afterwards. Like, there's a huge problem with that too. But I think there's a mode of engagement. Like people people clearly do want to be more democratically involved on some level, and I think there's a real challenge. But what, what does that look like? How do we do that? Is perhaps part of the solution that we need to rebuild institutions and modes of living within communities where people are forced to confront one another face to face and and hash problems out in person without the interference of market uh, interests. Yes, I think I think there is something about that. I do, and I think the marketization of every aspect of life has had that effect. I think it also tends towards majoritarianism as well. You know, I've been really struck by that living in Britain. It's become a much more majoritarian country over the last 10 years. And I'm, what I mean by that is the kind of winner takes all. We won that thing, so we get to do whatever we want. And if we, our guy wins next time, he can do the exact opposite of that. And I feel like that's, I feel that's quite, de- I do think that's quite destabilizing. I think it's quite destabilizing for people and it puts you in a box course, we're talking about this a day after President Joe Biden got to work reversing all the executive orders of his former opponent. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about your hopes, fears and doubts really about uh, a Joe Biden presidency. I used to live, I lived in the States for a while when I was younger in New York. I'm from Ireland, which is what we've always looked to the States. I've always kind of in some level looked at America as a city on the hill, even after mm. I left America. And I do think like a lot of people, I don't anymore. Mm. Um, and I don't think the young me would have gone there now. And I kind of, I think what's going to be very interesting is whether what we've seen over, it's very easy. And I think in a lot of ways, life, there's a lot of easy wins for like for a lot of people and not Donald Trump not being in the White House. And I think that is, you know, that's quite clear whether you are a Muslim in America or just not having to get quite as irate at your television every night. I think there's, there's benefits. But it'll be interesting to see is, is this just the kind of another notch, like a moment, but in America's, decline basically you know it does feel like we are moving very firmly to a multipolar world in which china is far more dominant has far more play which i I find quite uh, concerning for lots of reasons so it's fine to stand up and talk about unity but when a majority a clear majority of republicans think the election was stolen a a kind of small a large minority republicans think that what happened in capitol hill was fine you know it's 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 so easy to kind of go on go like you know we move on now to the next phase. So we'll see. I think it's going to be very interesting to see like, what does that look like. Is there a better term to describe what we have at the moment other than democracy, given that the system is so compromised? That's a very interesting question. And I do wonder, because democracy is almost, we've seen in America, democracy is one of those catch-all titles that everyone's really into. And there comes a point where you almost wonder, do words almost lose their meaning because we use them so we they be, because they are so broad and everyone pours into it? Um, I think it's a good question. I don't know the answer, but I think it is a very good question. We can't end this without me asking where, given that we would ordinarily be sat in your favourite restaurant at this point, you will be visiting eagerly the moment you can. I, I understand you've been in lockdown for a lot longer than we have in England. How long has it been now? Uh, the pub's shut at the start of October. Oh, yeah. Where would I go? I think I'd just go to Stravagan on, on, um, on Gibson Street in the west end of Glasgow and I'd just sit there with a glass of wine and some decent food, some decent quite like, like Thai fusion food and just watch the world go by for a while. I'd really like that. Tell us more about this place, Stravagan. Stravagan, just it's, um, uh, how long is Stravagan there? It's been long as I've been living in Glasgow anyway. Really interesting, quite lively menu, reasonably cheap and cheerful, good clientele, lovely service. 
and just a really nice spot to sit and just like with a fire, often a fire in the corner, and it's just a good spot to sit and while while away an afternoon. I kind of find like a Saturday afternoon sitting somewhere like Stravagan round about now. Yeah, I could really do that. It sounds excellent. Well, maybe we'll make it happen one day. But thanks so much for coming on, Peter. I really appreciated it. Really enjoyed talking to you. And I look forward perhaps to meeting you in person one day and for us to be able to go for a beer. What do you say? I'm up for that, Jack. All right. Thanks again. Cheers. Thank Take you, care. Bye. Bye.